fair to say you simply flooded the system with money? Yes, we did. That's another way to think about it. We did. Where does it come from? Do you just print it? We print it digitally. Look at what it means. This is why I'm saying, like, this is a lie that's been purported by Wall Street. The lowest rates, everything gets better all of a sudden. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. What about hard work? What about it? You work hard. Gods were like 30 to 1 against me. Yeah, I mean, there are very few people that, from my neighborhood, you know, in my environment, that make it out. Uh, I mean, forget about being to be successful, to make it out alive. We're back. Sorry for the little bit of a hiatus that we took, but we're back. The guys are back here. Um, I'm here with my guy, Rashid. What's going on? Uh, we have an illustrious guest joining us um, on a relaunch of Trading Places, Scott Robinson. Um, unfortunately, Twan couldn't be here this morning. I had a little bit of family emergency, but shout out to our guy. Um, he's still part of the family, um, but we're here, ready to go. It's been an eventful week. Um, but as mentioned, we have Scott Robinson joining us. Top of the morning. Very story nice career. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, thanks for coming, man. We really appreciate it. I know you don't do a lot of interviews. Actually, the last interview I seen you give was a couple years ago on That's Coin right. Telegraph. Um, wow. And even then, it seemed like you didn't really want to talk to them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just to kind of like hop right into it. Um, this is a crazy I want to talk to you, though. Yeah, you know that, right? I'm here. That's, I'm going to talk to yeah. you. We're here. Yeah. 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 One, uh, one we, the hiatus. We want all the listeners to know we did it for you guys. We, we've, we're listening. We're listening to the feedback that you've given. So we wanted to take some time just to take in all the feedback and be more thoughtful when we relaunch this so that it can serve more people. So, um, you know, we didn't forget about you. We took the hiatus with you in mind. Want to make sure that's, you know, super clear. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because our li- we're nothing without our listeners. Um, shout out to the listeners that we just gained um, in Estonia. I don't know who the hell you are, but shout out to you. <laughs> don't oh, even know awesome. how you found us. Yeah. I have an Estonian identity. Uh, really? Pretty cool. Yeah. The first digital identity solutions, or at least the projects, I'd like to say it's 2016. I met the prime minister. He was in a big old blue suit, came by Puff and Play when I was there. Nice guy, really young guy, super into crypto, understood it. Um, but yeah, Estonia launched an identity program in the Estonian, uh, what do you call it? Like a local office at Puff yeah. and Play. So that's pretty cool. Really? Is this just so the Shout out to Estonia. Oh, no, no, come on. <laughs> Global identity process. But yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of white people in Estonia. Sure. Right, right. I've never heard of a black person living in Estonia. I just wanted to be clear. Uh, but yeah, eventful week, man. Last last night, all throughout the night, earlier part of the day, the headlines was Trump and COVID. Um, early morning in the markets, we saw that the, the Dow was down tremendously. Then it kind of reversed. Um, you know, some names went from red to green, uh, but. I think this is going to have a material impact on the upcoming election. You know, what does that look like as far from a campaigning standpoint? Because I think he's suspending all campaigning efforts for the next two weeks. And the impact this will have on the markets, right? Because Trump has already come out multiple times and said, you know, if you don't reelect me, the markets are going to tank. 
Um, what do you guys? First off, do you guys really think he has COVID, or do you think this is a cover-up play? I'm just playing it to the conspiracy here because I've been hearing that. Oh man, here we go. I, I think the, I think he's got it, man. I don't I don't think he's. I mean, even if this is a sympathy play, it just it doesn't look like it, right? He's been hopped up on like an, uh, the more aggressive experimental drug as right. he was brought over to Walter Reed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if they are putting this out there as some sort of sympathy play, I don't think it's going to work out well. Uh, why would you sympathize with someone that ignored the advice of the head of the CDC and every other major scientist in the world? I don't get it. Yeah. Um, so no, it's very true. <laughs> it's kind of ironic, right? Like, because one, one of the things uh, that we say, one of the things we didn't mention was the debate that also happened this week. You know, if we can call it that. Um, but one of the big things that happened in the debate was Trump was actually talking about Biden and he was like, I wear a mask, but not like this guy, you know, um, everywhere he goes, he has the biggest mask around. And then two days later, he's diagnosed with COVID, um, which is pretty ironic. But yeah, here come the conspiracies. And the, right. you know, this conspiracy stuff too, like, look, when this whole thing broke open, a guy mm-hmm. named Yang started coronavirus API. Right. And the idea yeah. was state needed to track every single like validated or admitted yeah. patient that had been tested. And then, you know, and so you look at the state of Florida right now and they're not updating their information. It's not transparent. You look at the state of Georgia. Right. None of the schools are submitting any information or making it you know clear what is yeah. going on with the rates and the number of children that have had this and confirmed with the test. And so the point I'm making is that you talk about conspiracy. Well, the information at this point, it's hard to find and it's not clear. And so these guys, yeah. like, they, we're trying to find a way to just take the information down and at least store it. So it can't be manipulated, it can't be changed. And it's important that, that was something that was pushed. And you know what? About two months into this whole thing, uh, a lot of these respective states and their state health websites stopped uploading and you know updating information. So it'd be like a weekly update as opposed to a daily. So anyway, who knows? But at the end of the day, like, this is part of the problem. The misinformation can't be verified. You know, right. we don't know. And now we see cases back on the rise in places like New York, which up until I think this week or late last week, they had an infection rate that was, you know, pretty, you know, uh, was I think it was under 1%. I think it was, or it was either under 1% or at 1%. Um... And now it's back at 3%. And this is the first time they've seen a number, like a spike like this since, I believe, April. So it's a... The markets are are not going to... It's not going to be easy, I think. I think we're still in this, like, whatever they were calling it, kangaroo market, the K market, right? (laughs) Yeah, the K market. Jumping everywhere. I mean, it's a lot of volatility, which is why I don't have, you know, too much exposure to the market right now. Yeah. it's it's dangerous to have to be super exposed. Now, some people believe that, especially after the news came out a couple of days ago, that SoftBank once again is back in the market. They bought up two hundred million worth of call options. And for our listeners out there who don't understand what call options is, you basically make it on a bet on a direction of a stock price of a company, right? And I think they had so the direction of that bet is up. So you're, yes. you're betting on the market to go up, right? So go they ahead, took. Bro. Yeah, they no, they no, thank you. No, they took a bet on it going up and they took positions, I believe, in Facebook, Google, Amazon, and a few others. Um, 
Scott, how do you feel about <laughs> one, SoftBank participating in the public markets, especially after taking a beating in the private markets? And then two, where do you think we ultimately end up in the market in the next six months? Sure. Right. Obviously, nobody so, really knows. But, you know, what, what what signs are you are you seeing? I in the think market? either as risk SoftBank, or as a catalyst. Oh to man. Well, SoftBank had a lot of they had a lot of pressure on them to perform. I mean, if you think about it, SoftBank's got a pretty significant sovereign wealth funds behind them. They're a large contingent for what I would say is you know tier one like countries that certainly I think have aligned to this idea of mm-hmm. uh, you know strength in both like basically large cap investing. And now that they've pivoted, or I wouldn't call it a pivot, but I mean, it just seems like, hey guys, we screwed up real bad with this WeWork thing. We got to figure out a way to make some money in the next six months, right? And so let's, what do you think about this? Um, and I think they certainly have insight and analytics to understand the course of how the past six months have operated. I would say moving forward, I mean, this is a pretty damn volatile time for the entire world, right? We've got, yeah. we've got a lot of reason to be, I guess, uh, a little bit less confident that things are going to work out. I mean, here's a few reasons, right? Like number one, uh, the economy clearly has split. There's two economies, Wall Street and Main Street. And this is being felt in virtually like every paradigm you can think of. Employment, uh, retirement, education, um, opportunity, really. and. When that happens, the disparity of, you know, the outcomes that occur. So, for example, Wall Street goes way up, like that doesn't hit Main Street anymore. And it used to be that that was where it would hit and people would have a, a group win. So I, I think when you disassociate in these these varying types of like opportunities that have once been made available to the common you know person that might have a mm-hmm. restaurant or a small, medium sized business who have now been shut down. Right. Or in another way have been limited. They only have 20% of their business, maybe 40%, but after the margins, for, you know, so the point is, is that Main Street's been suffering now for months, right. years, right. and Wall Street seems to be doing fine. So as far as I'm concerned, there's going to be a reckoning. That don't work. That's not going to work out well. Um, Wall Street and Main Street are certainly and intrinsically intertwined. And to continue a nation and an economic paradigm that these things are separate is just saying uh i'm gonna eat my cake and have it too kind of thing because it's just not real um i think we're going to expect a lot of volatility in the next six months based on this reconciliation of that i think you can't really expect uh an election with this charge to it um the economy as it's functioning you know and, and then this whole covid thing behind it so i just I don't think we're going to be having a fun, easy go for the next six months. Nothing's going to get easy for the next six months. Yeah, I, I definitely hear you on that. And I tend to agree. Um, I agree. I've been saying there has to be some reckoning, but it's been going on for months now. And this disconnect between, as you put it, Main Street and Wall Street, it seems to be reinforced with the idea of, you know, just injecting liquidity. And what I mean by that, um, for everyone listening, is with these stimulus packages where you sort of have new inflows of capital and so much of it is disproportionately going into institutions and they just put it in assets. So I guess, what do you think? um, And I know this is a hard question, but what do you think might be the catalyst for some of this decoupling? I know that 
Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about getting another, I think, $2 trillion stimulus package. I mean, these numbers are just asinine at this point, but um, that would be $5 trillion for the year. If, if this is what we're committed to, what, what is it going to take in your mind? Um, I, I understand there's quite a few possibilities and I tend to agree with you. I'm just interested in hearing what you think is in the realm of possibility. Well, I think, you know, you look at jobs reports, right? Let's just think about the disparity of messaging of how the economy is working. I'd like to say between the airlines, there's been hundreds of thousands of layoffs or at least furloughs. Uh, you, you look across the hospitality markets, it's a very similar number, mm-hmm. Retail, similar number. Um, so I, I think, you know, we, we forgot about the basics, the basics of how economies work. And you yeah. need to measure the basics of economies at the constituent level, not at like, tier one level where everyone's doing well. And I think right now, the United States, while we could say, yeah, 10 million jobs came back, it lost 30 million. That's 10% of the entire country gone. And yeah. like arbitrary numbers when it comes to employment reporting, well, it, they're, they're not real. Right. These numbers are not real. They're made the, up. <laughs> the numbers are something to point to. Like, uh, it's like actually marketing collateral, right? These numbers do not reflect you because the job that you had doesn't pay for your life. You need two jobs, right? The average person working in retail has 2.3 jobs. So if you lost a job, they still have a job that they're working. They're not collecting unemployment, right? They're employed. So there's, there's like this granularity that is being overlooked. There's this reality that everyone is struggling and nobody's listening. And the thousand dollars that they got might work in like 20% of the country. But if you're anywhere close to a metro environment, like that thing went right out the window super quick. So what I'm trying to say is there's a, there's a latency and we haven't felt the latency yet. The latency starts with these layoffs. And when you begin to understand the layoff effect and it's like accrual across every other element of society, whether it's just spend on clothes or new supplies for school, everything's been affected. So I just, I can't understand how that hasn't been comped up, right? Because really what it comes back to is, you know, you have to measure it at the granular level. And what does this really mean? It means the CEO who's making 400 times the amount the lowest person in his company has to be held accountable. He's taken advantage of his employees or she's taken advantage of hers. And when you have a system like we have right now where accountability is basically reconciled to those that don't have money, right? Mm -hmm. Like we just watched, like literally we've watched people in our government trade, like knowing things the public did not, (laughs) right? Yeah. Like it's as simple as that by people, right? that are supposed to be looking out for us, that we've put into place as our as our employee, right? But we're not being treated that way. So I just have to say that like any expectation of the, you know, things being cool or coming back to what it was, I mean, you're just not looking at the details because the details are saying right now, we've got S&P 500 PE ratio that looks screwy, right? The multiple's too high. They're not making that kind of revenue. We just saw a lot <laughs> of cash, right? You know, right. they're buying back now, but they will in about six months when the like the term dries up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to the question, like, what's reality? What is real? Like, can you trust Damn. any of them? So, no, not what's right now. Reality? No, that, that, that's true. I mean, even in the mortgage market, right? We're, we're seeing news about the housing market being hot right now, but I think that's 
if you're able to participate, right? Most people are locked out because the lenders made the standards tighter. So it's still a game for those who have access to liquidity, like cash. And this morning I was reading about um, an article in Bloomberg where they said the ultra rich are taking out, you know, very ex- you know expensive home loans, right? Just to oh, have you bet. cheap cheap credit, cheap money, zero percent. It's falling from the sky. Right. And, and it's not it's not just about the access, right? It, there's there's an educational element too. You have to know that you can get that money. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's true. And, that's and then there's like relationships. That's right. There has to be like the execution of that side, right? So in addition to having the awareness, then you have to have the network and then the ability to do it. Yeah. They're not teaching that anywhere, right? No, I didn't teach it in my high school. No, it's it's Deutsche Bank or it's like Credit Suisse or it's some large bank with the wealth management division that's showing family offices how to do it. And they're taking they're taking a cut and the family office, you know, they're, they're handing over their capital. And that's, Man. this is exactly how it works, guys. I'm glad you brought that up because we're starting to see uh, more than ever the rise of the Wall Street landlord, where there's a lot of institutional money that's moving into asset management of like single family homes and whatnot. Oh, and in and Georgia, it's huge. It's yeah. huge here in Georgia. How much How much do you think of, of this, this housing market boom that they're, you know, discussing in certain pockets of the media? How much? How much do you think that is just institutional money? I, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not a specialist there, but I, I can say that it would make sense, right? There's definitely uh, when you have cheap money, why would you not acquire, right? This is t- like traditional Harvard M and A, like just draw and buy everyone else out, right? Yeah. Consolidate and then fire everyone. <laughs> like in this case, when you're t- about assets with you know, residential, single, you know, family, or even multifamily. Like to the extent for which you can get them under your belt, right? If you own eighty percent of the property in a particular territory, then you pretty much run the rates there, right? Mm. So, so there's a very strong and smart, I guess, strategy when it comes to leveraging the access to this capital, and then more importantly, like applying it to certain places where there's, you have the opportunity for the wedge, right? There's nobody there doing that. They don't understand what's going on. They can't. And, and I think when you take this like huge opportunity in their mind, right? Like where else have right. you heard 0%? <laughs> I mean, come right. on. It's a $5 no. million dollars or something like that, right? Come on. No, it's, it is definitely the case that institutions are taking up more and more of what used to be the residential market. And you know, when this, when this uh, sort of economic crisis first hit, my initial reaction was that it would uh, impact housing prices. But the more and more that I'm thinking about this, you just don't know because there's so many variables. Um, and one of them comes down to, you know, what, we're, what we were just saying with all of these funds. Um, you have so many private equity funds, so many institutions, you know, coming into these areas like Georgia, coming into Florida, coming into North Carolina, the like sort of just understanding the trend of, OK, COVID, people are moving from cities into more rural areas. And look at what look at these markets. And it's like, oh, this is where all the institutions have been buying the last five years. Interesting. And it's like, OK, so so when we do have some sort of point where there, there has to be a reconnection of what's going on in the real economy and the real estate market, 
some of these markets like in the south or in rural areas they might not drop that much because i honestly think with all the liquidity and all the free capital these institutions are just going to continue to buy up assets and they're gaining more and more dominance in these areas and they can afford to you know buy and hold due to tenant improvements and then you know maybe we get ubi and then they get people back in um i don't know i'm but the idea of the the market the housing market completely crashing that was what i thought early on but i feel like that's being challenged a lot more well, we might yeah. be saying this too early, though, guys. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of these properties are in forbearance until like it, it was March listen, or April. Do you remember 2006? Where were you guys in 2006? I was in 10th grade. Oh, I was I'm in, sorry. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I was in 11th grade. Yeah. Yeah, I was in middle school. I was five years older than you at that point, basically. Right? Like, in my mind. Yeah. I was living in Santa Barbara. <laughs> right? Yeah. And my point is, is it took two years for the mortgage crisis to be reconciled with with the with the markets. Mm-hmm. The things that everyone saw was right. It was right front and center. But Moody's didn't pay attention. Nobody paid attention. They didn't care because they were making money. Because it's not their job to care. It's their job to make money. So what I'm saying is, it took about 18 months of people looking at bad numbers. Hey guys, the numbers are bad. Hey guys, the numbers are bad. Right? They kept like when they got into the to the mortgages that were actually being put out, you know, it took a long time for people to see the trend. Like it wasn't something like, oh, that shouldn't be triple A. What the heck? You know, it wasn't like that. It took a long ass time. It took a lot of it took a lot of those bad mortgages, right? Like where there's smoke, there's fire. It took a hell of a lot of smoke in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we look at the markets right now, COVID occurred, let's call it March. For the United States, it occurred in March. And things started to really kind of get impacted. When the, when the country economy shifted, you know, these jobs began to be laid off right around June, July, right? And now we're hearing and seeing the second round of this. I don't think people have paid attention to the bigger picture, which is when COVID occurred, employment changed. The world changed. The employment for the United States changed, which meant if you did not have to physically be at your job, mm-hmm. Your job is now different, which means we are in a global employment competition because remote work doesn't care where you're at, right? Right. That's so right. I don't think that's been priced in, uh, right? From a from a corporate like corporate economic accounting perspective, I think they're looking at, oh wow, we can really, man, we could really get a good like twenty two percent payroll reduction here with this remote working guys. How can we? Uh, mm-hmm. Do you see what right. I'm saying? Let, and when that point. 22% reduction hits, then like I think we'll start to see the housing market. Mm. Housing well, market well, sometimes are the canary, sometimes they're not. Yeah. And, and I want to be clear. But, so the point I was trying to make is that I don't think we'll get a universal sell-off anymore because it seems like institutions have been planning for this shift to remote work because like when i look at the specific markets where institutions are dominating it's places like atlanta nashville austin charlotte so what what i guess i'm trying to say is depending on where you live this free credit could allow them to double down triple down and then we have a dichotomy where in these cities where people flock to they basically own the market and you know you basically have institutions and then people renting from these institutions Whereas in these bigger cities where you have more of an exodus, it could all, you know, sort of come crashing down. So, no, but that's that's a great point. I just. Um, no, you're totally right. You're 100 percent right. 
when the you homogenization have... of the revenue, right? It used to be if you had a bunch of small businesses in an area, like the disparity between wealth and those, you know, varying types of roles wasn't as big as it is now. Because yeah. corporate, it just pulls it right out of that area. It does. It just peels it right out and it avoids the taxes through an island, hop, hop skip, jump, you know, whatever. And it never gets felt back in the city. Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of these guys are just wait, you know, waiting like hawks because as of right now, I think it's uh, 6.8% of all active mortgages are in forbearance. But wow. there's a balloon payment that is due, you know, at the end of that period. And most of these forbearances expire January 1, March. You, you know, it's going to it's gonna happen slowly. And then all that, I think it's going to happen slowly. And then all at once, a lot of people are going to be out in the street, unfortunately. Like there are, it's another, there are it's another long arm that's coming right around. Exactly, right? Like these these rent protections. Yeah. When, when a lot of these places are being opened back up, you know, there's a question. There's startups that are going about issuing the pay or quit notices. On you know, like just really optimizing the pushing out of people from houses. You know, fundamentally, this like it just all feels wrong. It just it doesn't feel like. It feels like the purpose of everything is to make money and we forgot about why we are here. We're humans that want things to work, not to like, you know, be taken advantage of in every element of our lives. Right. Every chance you get, you know, like every corner, someone collecting a toll. Yeah, there's yeah. a middle and everywhere. There's a middle and, and that brings me to my next point. It seems as if the way that the world is going, it's going to benefit the toll takers. Um, and we see, just out of curiosity, Scott, no, you know, knowing what we're in right now, how are you protecting yourself against these risks that exist in the market? Like, have you has has your four hundred one k going to straight cash, or you know, have you increased <laughs> well, your crypto holdings? Like, I mean, my hand was kind of forced. Uh, my wife got a job, uh, which made made me not able to have stock. So I sold all my stock. <laughs> and that happened to be in February. So it worked out. Uh, I mean, oh, wow. <laughs> but, <That's awesome. laughs> I mean, literally my hand was forced. Uh, and I realized, um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a trader, man. I'm not like, I'm not like one of those guys on the, you know, got the trading. Yeah. Channel. You're not Dave Portnoy. I'm not, no, I'm, I'm like a pull a trigger. I'll talk to you in a few years. Come back. And yeah. in this case, you know, I went cash, I'd like to say 2018 for the most part. I just mm -hmm. went to full cash. And, mm -hmm. you know, for a quick background of who I am, um, you know, I was very early in, in uh, watching the cryptocurrency space. So I, I was able to run a Bitcoin meetup here in the Bay Area uh, that Roger Ver um, gave to me. And I got to meet some very early crypto folks um, like Andreas Antonopoulos and um, Charlie Lee and you know a lot of the folks around here that were building startups and so I guess the point there is uh, you know it's the same strategy just be long uh, be, be confident in your investment but be long and mm, so, strong hands exactly what and what go ahead yeah, yeah what sparked your interest in the crypto space especially well, around that time when it was extremely novel I mean we're talking 2011 2012 right Right. Most people were I, not paying attention to cryptocurrency. So when I got, a, I went to UCLA, I got a school in 2008 and I graduated a quarter early in March. Like I just, I, I stacked all my, my classes and I was working at the library there, the SCNL library. 
And I moved up to Santa Barbara because that's where my girlfriend was at the time. She was going to UCSB. And I thought I was a big fish, small pond. I'm like UCLA guy around here. I'm going to get a job. And, you know, markets crash, right? So I got this job managing facilities and properties around the country for a staffing firm. And I hated it. You know, it was like the only thing I could get, uh, to be honest. And like, we would basically I was looking at invoices for like water dispensers and places. And then, you know, the toilet broke somewhere in like Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I had to call up, you know, a locksmith or somebody like Ned's locksmith from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I had to call out to get some, you know, so I was doing weird jobs all over, talking to people all over the country. And uh, basically somebody in that company embezzled a lot of money. And I found out and I was the one that caught it. And I caught it because I wrote a script checking utility usage against properties and square footage. And what I was looking for was anomalies. And I found one in Lake Forest where a lot of people were, uh, I guess, using the water line for the entire shopping center. So we were paying water for like all the grass, all the trees, everything for an entire shopping center, you know, like 40 tenants. Um, so it was a massive bill, it was wrong. And it had been there for seven years. And the point is, is that I got into crypto because when this script yielded two people, the chief of risk, the head of accounts payable, embezzling cash directly to their bank account, because I was able to see, hey, that money didn't line up. Uh, it was clear technology and transparency when it came to accounting was important. Um, so I was always looking for something that would be basically benefiting people wanting to see transparency with money, particularly accounting. Uh, and so Bitcoin, you know, was that in many ways for me. Um, I think I, I read the Cocker story about drugs and yeah. you know, some friends at UCLA told me about it. So, but yeah, I didn't realize um, that would be in print in the age of cryptocurrency. But my friend Paul Tinio, Michael Case, so <laughs> Casey. Um, so there's a there's a clip in there that I had to explain to my parents about as to how I found about Bitcoin. Anyway, <laughs> um, this week one of the largest uh, crypto exchanges in the world, Bitmex, came under a lot of heat um, from the Alphabet Boys. Um, I still haven't truly grasped my head around the case because from what I understand, BitMEX has never operated in the U.S. They're headquartered in Singapore, right? Well, no, they have a few entities that are Delaware corporations and they have, <laughs> they have corporations all over the world. So what the yeah, document right. says is that they're going to treat it as an entire, you know, the entity all is one and they're going to go after the whole thing. Wow. So yeah, Scott, I know you you spent a lot of time um, in your in your days in crypto, especially early on, talking to bankers, talking to regulators. Uh, do you think this poses a, a big risk to other exchanges that are kind of operating on the fringes? Uh, will this impact um, companies that are not in bed with the regulators every night, like Coinbase and Gemini? You know, what do you, I mean? Just what are your thoughts on this whole idea? Sure. Well, sure a lot of people I mean, talking about. It. I remember when Coinbase didn't have KYC. It, you could add your credit card and buy. Right. It would have been like May 2013, maybe even before that. And they would have just been capitalized by a well-known Chinese VC and Draper and the YC, all that whole crew, right? 2012, I think, is when they came out. So they were like eight, nine months into production, trying to trade. And so, you know, very quickly as they picked up, it, they were the best interface at the time, meaning when people say it's the best interface, what it really means is the least number of clicks and the easiest way, like, you know, to get to the outcome. And in that case, it was buying and selling Bitcoin. Um, but very quickly, KYC popped up, you know, once they 
once they basically, I think, probably met with a number of folks that were representing LPs that, you know, a VC might say, hey, look, we, we want to invest in you, but um, our LP is Prudential and our other LP is Credit Suisse. So you're going to have to get your compliance stuff together, pal. Like, we're not going to be able to do that unless you kind of get your act together. Um, and then I think over the past seven, eight years, you've seen folks like Kraken, Shapeshift, uh, and, you know, a bunch of others very quickly find pressure coming to them relevant to know your customer requirements as they were applied, you know, in cross-border transactions. And, you know, I actually got to go to Department of Treasury um, and brief the anti-terrorism team, Secret Service, uh, a bunch of other folks with Coinbase, Circle, and a bunch of other people. And this would have been February 2014. So it's third floor of Treasury. It's a big, long haul. And, you know, basically they laid the law there. They, they said to the effect, you know, we, we see you all as money service providers. Um, you're moving money in and out of the United States. We don't care where you're originating. We work with the largest and most important banks and heads of state throughout the world. Uh, so if you think you're going to get away with it, just check out Liberty America in Costa Rica, see what happened there. Um, and it was like really clear uh, between the constituents of the varying agencies and the people in that room that there would be no um, circumventing KYC. So, I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, I'll tell you who wasn't in the room. I mean, who we just brought up, right? They weren't there. Um, and I so think- you got people, Illuminati. Well, no, I think, <laughs> like you're moving money, right? Monies are attached to governments and like they're also attached to reasons why they don't want people to move money. There's bank lists, right? There's suspicious activity. All these things are the society is built around protecting the way money moves. And I don't know if I agree with it, but that's just the way it is. I mean, so to have an expectation outside of the way it is, I mean, yes, if you want to break things, if you want to change things, absolutely. This is how you have to do it. But I think if you're going to expect something that's not going to happen. I mean, this was going to happen, right? I guess that's my point. Is it was clear to a lot of people it was going to happen, and therefore they changed the, the way that they operated. So God. the news is not a surprise. I met Arthur a number of times. I believe I might have had him speak at my meetup at some point as well. Um, I have met him in Singapore, uh, and I got to meet him up in San Francisco May 2018. So that would have been right around the time he was being hit with this stuff. And, you know, I, I feel really bad for the guy. I know he's been really helpful to crypto and I know he's made a huge impact um, across the world. And just like from a, like a financial like tools perspective, a lot of people learn uh, how to use things like puts and so forth or just whatever, you know, across his platform because it was accessible. Um, and that was a huge element to bringing crypto to people. So it's a tough situation, but, I, you know, I think a lot of people in the market saw what was coming they knew what to expect and um hopefully this is more bark from from folks like dot and others where uh the long-standing tradition is to chop the tallest tree or you know let the head roll mm-hmm. it out so you could ask charlie shrem or other people like that but um that's kind of how it worked out what do you think um i guess so some of the things that i've heard are that, you know, they're trying to clear the way for a Bitcoin ETF. And part of it is getting out some of these 
big leverage exchanges who they suspect might be manipulating prices. Um, What's your take on something like that? And, um, you know, what do you think is sort of the motivation before behind, you know, why now? Bitcoin ETFs, but like, man, that's been a thing for years, like just years and years and years. And just, oh, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> you know, uh, like, let's be real. Bitcoin is a small market. You know, there's there's 18 million Bitcoin of the 21 that's been mined, basically, right? 18 million plus have been mined already. So that means they're out there running around somewhere. Um, there's a lot that's been lost, uh, but. You know, when you're when you're kind of like a market compliance or a market forensics or you know whatever, you're you're out there to basically see are people cooking up crap. Can I swear on this thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Please go for it. Typical white guy question. Okay, thanks, guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know these these people are looking for who's who's going to be like saying some shit and doing something else that's not real and. I think they've caught a lot of folks that can cook the markets. And at the same time, when you review, you know, through the eyes of folks like Genalysis or others, I mean, it's pretty clear there's ways people can change the market. And then when you pull back from a technical perspective, look, this market's pretty unique. Uh, technically speaking, it's got a lot of algorithmic trading built around sentiment that has been tied up. So it's like perhaps one of the more mature, like executable, tradable kind of industries where you've seen like really drastic movements, right? Um, and a lot of that is the inflation response to people who have built bots that say, you know, sell Bitcoin when there's a negative sentiment article from a tier one publication, something like that. And like people did this as something, as a hobby, as an individual. People did this as groups, like to trade. People did this at a pool level. People did this as at like an institutional level. People wow. did in-house at the startups that issued the coins. Mm. So there's a lot of, I guess, technically mature applications being applied to these markets that I can say most regulators, if they're savvy, and, you know, I've I've dealt with a lot of regulators from the Monetary Authority of Singapore to um, the people that wrote the PSD2 standards in Europe. Um, and I would say that they probably have reasons why it hasn't been approved, right? So that's probably the easiest way to just point it out. Is mm-hmm. It doesn't meet standards to the effect that they feel comfortable knowing people can't change the market with something. And it's not like there hasn't been pump and dump examples in if that's change, right? Yeah. But don't you think there's like a lack of accessibility um, to these tokens or cryptocurrency? Because when we have when I've, when I've had conversations with people, like the exchanges still cut off a good amount of people, right? You have to have a bank account to get signed up yeah. with these exchanges, right? Well, I, I mean, and the I'll only give you other option is yeah. what Bitcoin ATMs, and I you don't have to go. On, I, I know how you feel about Bitcoin ATMs. If you want to share, feel free. But don't you think? that exchanges need to play a role in the education and driving the mass adoption of crypto assets. And it it, it seems like they're not looking to take more risk. And maybe it is because of like being scared off by regulators of creating more accessibility. Like for the life of me, I don't understand why gift cards don't exist. Right. 
I mean, um, like it I, is in their interest. Yeah. Happen. Something needs to happen to make crypto more mainstream because I still feel like it's a it's an underground culture. It's a subculture. I mean, what to, to understand why it hasn't been adopted, you have to consider the options available for value transfer mm-hmm. and like the, you know, the distance between that, right? Like for example, a Venmo is pretty straightforward, right? It's right in your pocket, you know the brand, your friends are on it. It's pretty easy to find somebody new. Use case is I need to send somebody probably less than $5,000, frankly, less than $1,000, right? That's the use case. Venmo quickly. And nothing like that existed for some time. And, and with, with Bitcoin, you know, that something like that was available. But the path to executing that movement of that value mm-hmm. is a completely different interface. And it was so difficult to explain. And there were so many extra things associated with it that I think to the extent for which money and Bitcoin can be interchanged in a way where you would say it's yeah. easy and people haven't, mm-hmm. I mean, we're not there yet. We're getting closer. I mean, there's a lot of interfaces that make it simple, but yeah, it would be in the, it most certainly it would be in the interest of these exchanges to be showing easier ways to, to use crypto. But like, are you using crypto to go buy your kombucha at Whole Foods? No, <laughs> you're not doing that. Nobody's doing that. And if you are, like, why are you doing that? <laughs> Shouldn't be investing in it. Right? I regret. Oh, man. I remember I paid for three nights um, at a hotel in L.A. This was back in 2013. I believe this was when Expedia was accepting uh, Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. And um, I spent about I can't remember, but it was it was a. It was less than a thousand, but it was more than five hundred dollars in Bitcoin. And I think about it all the time. I think about it all the time. Well, I bought Hashfast miners, so if you know what that means, that means I've pretty much lost all my Bitcoin since then. It was such an up upside. We had wow. two coming. What? Oh, what scares you most about crypto right now? I know, um, and we're going to get into you know your new career. Sure, stop, sure. but. What, what scares you most about the industry? And, and do you still believe in Bitcoin? And if you do, are you a maximalist or do you believe in having a more balanced portfolio to protect yourself against like, you know, a lot of people are, Paul Tudor Jones said, well, we're investing in Bitcoin because we want to protect ourselves against inflation. Do you share the same view or do you just think? Well, that's- first off, I'm a, I am definitely a believer in crypto and I am a Bitcoin, like, I wouldn't say maximalist, but I am pretty much Bitcoin first. And I have been that way for a long time. Um, and nothing really changed for me. I guess just reality struck that the accessibility and the interface of Bitcoin and what it meant for the average business wasn't really, it just wasn't. And the message wasn't clear, the value proposition to like a retailer or to somebody that's just like trying to deal with the way to send and receive money just wasn't working out. And the promise of Bitcoin was something where that would be like value added. And we just, I just never saw it. So I kind of got frustrated with this premise that the crypto world disassociated with the real world. They forgot why we have money and what it means to do like things with money. And, you know, if you think about it, and if you just like classify all of your money um, and you think about like where you would be touching or doing something with your money the most, like there's really only a few places where that's happening, right? It's like you acquiring the daily things you need, food, transportation, stuff like that. 
the people you interact with, right? So you send money, receive money. And then maybe like layer two stuff, the meta money where you're like trading or I don't know, saving, whatever else. But the point is, it's like the highest frequency of money interaction is like you doing stuff like in your immediate surrounding. And when you think of what Bitcoin does now and how it offers its value proposition in that use case, it hasn't been particularly great. There's latency, there's like challenge within the interface of wallets, people that like accept it, don't accept it. It's not like American Express, accept it everywhere. You know, it's not like that. It's like a different experience everywhere you go. And from my my history of working with these point of sale folks, and you know, that ranges from Toshiba Global Commerce Solutions, to Vantu, Genico. I mean, the United States is pretty fragmented. So in a similar way, your experience paying for things on your traditional card or phone, whatever, it's a different experience everywhere you go, right? Like it's new or it's a little bit different. If you're in your same location, sure. Like it's definitely regionally based. But my point is, is that for the most part, the consistency is all the same there, right? You take your card out and you swipe, or you take your card out and you enter it. It's the same action. But with Bitcoin, that has not been available. And when you think about any other crypto, which would be close to it, that has not been available. And if you proxy it through a card, it's like, well, what the fuck? Why are you, I mean, why, what? You know, like, oh, you're going to give me rewards? Okay. Like, fucking how many whatevers you, you know, <laughs> the fuck does this mean and where do I use it right because that's usually been bullshit for the most part right. so so I got frustrated watching all of these like abstracts fucking like DeFi yield farm fucking whatever you know like 40 extractions from your daily high you know frequency real interaction with money and I just, like, just, I got sick of hearing it. You know, I just got sick of the, we do this, except we stake this, and then we're going to put this coin on here, and then you use it across here, and it does everything. You know, it's got 3,000 transactions per second. It's got a proof of stake. Well, they're all getting this month. You know, like, just fucking show me who's using it and why they're using it, because it's better than what they have. So it's still very nerdy. The crypto space is very nerdy. I mean, it, it's just out there. Yeah. Yeah, like, it has not... But there is a lot that's real too, okay? Right. No, no, no. no, 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 That is Bitcoin and like Ethereum. There's been some real stuff out there that has really impacted and changed stuff. And I think Bitcoin, not in a maximalist way, but Bitcoin's been pretty consistent, guys. Like it's been there, been it's been proven, it's been tested, right? So like there's some battleware to it, and I think in anyone's experience, you like, you know, you like going with something that's tested. And like that's hardened by being in the market. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah. I've heard um, one of the things to piggyback on that point. Um, one of the things that I heard the CEO of MicroStrategy, Michael uh, Saylor, say mm-hmm. was name one network technology that got past $100 billion and then failed. <laughs> and I was like, he's absolutely right. Like uh, once you have a network technology and right now, Bitcoin is about $200 billion. But he was saying, once you get to that $100 billion threshold and you have a network technology, it's no shutting it off. It's no shutting it off. And we haven't, I mean, we haven't even seen anything close to its potential. We're not even sniffing it. We're we're seeing right now the context of it being applied to the most basic idea of things, right? But when you think about what a smart contract or something along these lines might offer 
in a business that you know we talked about middlemen yeah holy shit guys like that's the promise is that is that finally there could be a way to trust outside of what a person says based on a mathematical proof or historical like validation and verification yeah and that context is something that only a bank or a government could offer and all of a sudden they're not alone right so would you say if someone were just getting started in crypto you know a lot of people don't want to get started because they feel that they're, they're too late to the party oh, but i think they're still early i think right I, now you are still early folks uh listen it's probably going to crash like for real <laughs> if if you've been in bitcoin as long as i've been in bitcoin you will remember when it went from like something to a dollar you'll remember when it went from like a dollar to 20 from 20 to like 50 and then like 50 was like 100 and then like when it got to 100 i think it was like 230 something right and everyone was like oh but it crashed like it always crashed and it crashed hard so yeah uh I think the way I've always explained how to enter into Bitcoin or crypto generally is, okay, you're in Vegas, right? Just put what you're willing to lose on it and forget about it. Hold on to it and just kind of chip away at it over time. And you'll be surprised. I remember Thanksgiving, I went to Oregon, probably in 2015. My wife's family is up there and uh, my brothers moved up there and uh, you know, I think I was giving away five or ten dollars worth of Bitcoin, right? I was just like, hey guys, here's a little thankful for you, you know, there's five dollars, you know, and fucking they would like, you know, like everyone, they'd get a new phone, you know, years go by. I'm like, Scott, you know, what happened to like Bitcoin you gave it? Did you give me Bitcoin? Like, <laughs> you know, check your Coinbase or like, you know, do you have a Coinbase app on your wall? Like, yeah, I always wondered what that was or, you know, yeah, well, fucking try and log in. And so we would log in and it'd been like, oh, yeah, so when I sent it, it was $5. Now it's a thousand. So like, shut up and like, think about it some more, you know? And that happened a lot for me. Like when the, when I was running the meetup, like I would, I would make a point of making sure new people would get some a little bit, you know, we would hand out like it was like a wannabe faucet in real world, right? right. Faucets. And so I was trying to be like super cool friends and explain how it worked. And usually that would end with the five dollars being sent because it wasn't a big deal. And, you know, I had worked with folks like Change Tip and others, and we would do the same shit with Change Tip. Um, like Nick Sullivan, cool guy. But yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of a lot of different things that I think, you know, people just haven't really been able to grasp yet. And, and, and it could be. Yeah. Right, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, my oh, no, there are more ways to make money in crypto now than it was four years ago. There's a lot more ways. There, there's, there's so many different applications going around. Use cases that, you know, there's definitely ways to make money. I would say you're still risky as hell. Like, right. I mean, you better be running right and like make sure you're you're keeping pace with what you're doing. You can't like the crypto world is a pace unlike any other world like years occur in a day um <laughs> that's, a fact. that's because so nothing nothing turns off you've got you've got markets 24 7 everywhere in the world so yeah good prepared. luck yeah. <laughs> right, strap right, in no, right that's, that's very true you want to trade right <laughs> <laughs> right it's a, it's a lot of ways to get money in crypto um if someone didn't want to just buy and hold right so scott let's say kid walks to you off the street he's 18 years old 
He's like, hey, I'm about to go to college. I got about $5,000 to invest, but they don't want to buy and hold. Where would you point them to in crypto? So the first thing I would say, they gotta, they gotta do some reading. Like they gotta be committed to understanding what they're doing. Like otherwise they should, might as, they might as well just like throw their, their crypto at an invalid address or something, right? Just throw the money away. If you're not gonna be educated about what you're dealing with. So I think what that starts with um, is really quickly downloading a wallet and like dealing with the product itself, right? Yeah. So before you're gonna do anything with your money, like figure out what this whole program is. Down, go, you know, go to go find a Bitcoin wallet, download it. Look at what it is. Look around in, in the app. Go find an Ethereum wallet. Do the same, and like be very, you know, be very, I guess, judicious about what you're looking at, and like judge it based on the context of how you would judge other apps, right? Like you're not going to download a, a wallet or a bank app if there's like four likes and like six reviews that all say five stars, right? So be smart about what you're doing because there's a lot of scams in this. There's a lot of scams because crypto acts a lot like cash too. So there's a finality, which is why you need to understand what you're dealing with with the wallet first. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, so that's the first step I suggest to everyone. And part of that is why I would you know, give five bucks out is because they'd have to deal with the wallet. Then. Wow. Um, Do you so want to give five dollars to every one of our listeners today? <laughs> I wish I could, guys. I cannot right now. But man, that's a nice question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Um, what I can do uh, is I'd be happy to give out to three different listeners that share this on Twitter or Instagram and tag you and your stuff. I'd be happy to send them 10 bucks each. So, all right. Who does right. that? We got um, it right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to send right. 10 dollars each of Bitcoin to each of them for sure. Bet. Oh, we're gonna hold you to that. <laughs> I'm a man of my word, and we I mean, can, we can share the, we can actually share the transaction record, uh, okay. so that people know it's real. Um, but okay. I think more importantly is there's a there's a finality with crypto where it's me and it's like cash. So there has to be a seriousness to it, and it can't be treated. And, and, and if you're looking at it from investment, sure, it's a little bit different in that context. Um, and there's more traditional ways for which you can get exposure to crypto by not having to deal with the wallet. But my point is, is the wallet is the technology. It's the product. It's the reason why you might be using it. And if you use it and you don't believe in it, then don't invest, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not going to work out. It just isn't. But if you if you can understand the value of what this is doing and what it could offer, and then you get interested, you know, often you go down a rabbit hole and you want to learn more. But I feel like the best way to invest in anything is to get to know it and be you know, you have to have some sort of, I guess, conviction instinctually. For me, that's just like you got to use it. Yeah. So crypto is part of your earlier journey, but um, you're now in the cannabis space. You're developing compliance software for the cannabis industry. Tell us more about that. And, uh, you know, what event made you want to build this particular solution? Because most people who are trying to enter cannabis, they want to get a dispensary, not knowing that that's a very short-term game. It seems like you're taking a more long, um, unorthodox approach here by entering the industry via software. Yeah, Uh, well, thank you. And yes, uh, Sellout is free compliance for cultivators. We're live in California and we send metric harvest reports for free, faster than the web and uh, solutions that are out there. And we're free so that other people are paying for that. But the story kind of, it's a bigger story um, in the sense that 
The reason why I went to cannabis is because every product in cannabis requires a unique identifier. It requires a tag. And in addition to that, the history of whatever that tag is, you know, forwards and backwards, is reported to the state. So there's this provenance of every single product. Uh, and, and really what that means is every plant that gets put in the ground or grown indoors in hydroponic setups has a tag attached to it. And when I was working in traditional fintech, so I worked after that you know, Bitcoin stuff, I, I created a Bitcoin accelerator, uh, it's called Plug and Play, and that turned into a fintech accelerator with large banks. We worked with huge banks all around the world, like mega banks from Japan, like Mitsubishi Sumitomo, and uh, here in the States, Credit Suisse, US Bank, Deutsche Bank, um, Regions. Um, you know, there's, there, there are a lot of banks, 50 banks, um, and they were all looking for things like enterprise or ways to maybe use or buy up um, technology to bring to their customers for their for competitive advantage and optimization, stuff like that. And in addition, I would be working with a lot of these different governments and understanding kind of where they were moving compliance requirements and what that would mean from a, you know, a software technology perspective. And the one thing that always stood out to me is just how nobody, like, there's this plausible deniability in everything. I mean, it just, there was no, there was no mechanism that existed in the entire financial system that created a transparency um, down to everything, the detail of everything. And that frustrated me because what it meant is, you know, when you, trans when you send a wire, massive wire there's like a 10 percent chance it might fail and like there's so many hands involved where like there's risk where somebody at the table on the compliance side at a different bank that's receiving a wire could you know do something different and manipulate that so the money would be moved and there would be no way to trace it and nobody would know and money would just disappear or you know you would come down to the idea of a transaction being moved between two entities and it would, it would be basically censored because one person had the power to switch it off or to reverse it and you know retailers feel this the same way every day chargeback like there's just there's nothing they can do about it with the cards and all these so anyway i got frustrated with this idea that you know the technology is out here it exists for us to be able to be this unique it's hard like it's a lot harder and like people don't like doing hard shit, you know. They, when they look at us, they go, "Oh, that's fucking too hard. It's too tall. Like, there's too much shit you have to change." And and basically, what I was trying to figure out was a way to know how how could you know every transaction and use the information on the transaction to optimize things like accounting or compliance or other stuff um, to make things so basically remove the middlemen. Like, what service do we not have to have if we could just like use this? You know, basically cannibalize it with code. And it became more and more clear that, like, technically that's possible. But what I needed was an environment where there would be a challenge, uh, you know, both across the infrastructure, but probably more across, like, you know, how you would handle the information. And so with my compliance background looking at cannabis, it was like, wow, there's this huge void. Everyone's got to do all this extra bullshit. Nobody wants to do it. It's fucking hard. And on top of it, there's like, there's a lack of banking infrastructure. Uh, you know, when people enter the cannabis industry, sometimes there's a question of talent, right? Like, are they motivated? What the fuck? Like, are they just potheads? You know, there's all this other shit that's like extra in this space. So it's nice. It's a nice cover for me, but it's a fucking really hard market. So we chose cannabis because we knew people had to do a lot of paperwork. And what that would mean is we'd be able to figure out more and more information to help optimize services around their inventory. Yeah, you mentioned banking 
um, hurdles. Banking and cannabis has been at odds, um, even with more institutional participation in the cannabis industry compared to a couple years ago. Uh, why hasn't there been any progress, right, um, on the Hill, you know, through Congress? Like, why, why hasn't the Safe Banking Act passed at this point? Because you have a lot of big money, deep-pocketed people that's in the industry now, but it seems like there's been no movement whatsoever. It, it feels like it's a political volleyball game of, you know, who wants to spike it, right? And they're just waiting to spike it. And I feel like there's a lot of... There's a lot of reasons why it would make sense to push this through right now, but there's also a lot of traditional powers at play that have a lot to lose. Every pharmaceutical company that you know, has seen recreational go live, the direct competition for them is at the painkiller level and mm-hmm. it's significant loss. So there's one constituent that sees loss across marijuana being passed. Second, people do it more, you know, they drink less, they smoke cigarettes, perhaps less. Um, so there's two other industries that maybe they've gotten some creative destruction positions, right? Like they've invested in certain spaces seeing this coming. Um, so there's, there's people that recognize that this is going to be, I think, uh, a, a piece of America for some time, and it's going to take away other thing, other things from America. And then, you know, I think there's also at a grander scale, like <laughs> what if it is really effective? What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean for these like huge companies that do Bayer and aspirin and all this other shit, right? Like if GWPH, GW Pharmaceuticals that creates the drill or whatever, you know, the people that create all these epileptic drugs that have millions and millions of research, a lot of reasons on the line. So I think there's enough friction to, to stay in place if it wanted to, which means you got to really have a, a push to push it through. And gotcha. at this point, I don't think there's something that clear. Now, if it's if it's used as a political volleyball, I think that's like, hmm, how, how could we quickly like pick up a segment, right, of people? And I can see it being played that way. Both the House and the Senate going fully Democrat is the only way I see it happen. I hope so. I mean, I think I think we are seeing like real proof in the markets, right? Like from the idea of people using cannabis right now, right? The markets are exhibiting that people are smoking a lot of weed uh, during COVID. And I think, I think maybe it's part of the market too. Right? Well, but I think it's part of the function of being home, perhaps. But also, uh, I think, you know, we're, we're flattening out the process for how people get it. And that wasn't necessarily clear, you know, maybe a year or two ago. And now it's a lot more easy. But I, back to the question. Why hasn't it passed? Will it pass? I think there's just too much political volleyball at, at, at stake. And I think, uh, you know, there's probably a, a challenge that people aren't really talking about, yeah. which is the illicit market and like the metal that's being involved in that. So that's a huge problem. And that's probably part of it. So, you, you know, you ask about why Bitcoin ETF can't come around. Well, similarly, I think that there's an element of like, how can we have like a cohesive national plan with managing cannabis? Uh, um, are you taking crypto as a form of payment from your customers? Uh, well, we're free, so. Oh, okay. We're 100% free. Um, yeah, I think, I guess when you look at a market like cannabis, the cultivator has to pay for, uh, 
you know, a license, an environmental inspection report, all the traditional farming requirements. Um, then they have additional requirements like testing, moving things, the compliance, you know, is hours or something or other. And then if they're moving cash, somebody's going to take money from them, right? Because they don't have a bank account or a bank wire. It's not easy. Um, so I think across all of those things I just said, probably about 30 to 40% of the margin's gone. And then you give it to the reseller, the distributor, and they take a huge chunk too. So the question so, was, how do you enable a legal cannabis market? And the answer is, is you have to you have to take out some of those margins to make it easier than realistic. Okay. No, no I, I'm fascinated about a market. Um, obviously, it has evolved over the past couple of years. What do you What do you hate most about cannabis operators in the industry today? Uh, you know, besides the fact that. Uh, most of their teams are full of white guys. Uh, in yeah. your opinion, is the industry I mean, lack? It is lacking black people. Like, let's just let's call it what it is. It is exactly that. Uh, and how it's can people? Slap in the face. Oh. It's not. It's not just that, but it's a slap in the face, right? Because there's all these folks that have been incarcerated. This guy Jared Polis over in Colorado um, is working on that right now, both expunging a bunch of. Uh, folks that have marijuana convictions and enabling them to get right back out in the streets. You know, and it's, it's messed up how this has worked out. And you know, a lot of it has to do with money, man. It's all about the money, right? Yeah. And it's the access to money. Um, so I think, you know, there's a clear problem when it comes to the idea that you can have a business, but you can't smoke it, right? And like that story can't be reconciled as it is right now. It doesn't make any sense. It just, right? And I think the bigger problem is, you know, it's it's just, it's obvious that there's a very consistent mentality that's been associated with marijuana and cannabis, wherever you are, right? Um, and that is a branding problem, I think, just generally for the industry. We find people are always associated with being like, you know, dipshits or you know, criminals, and that's been a thing, right? That's been since 1920s, back to uh, Arizona it's, and Mexican yeah. populations being associated with it. So cannabis has been a very easy culprit to pin on to people, is my point. It's a proxy to put on to somebody if you don't like them, you don't like the way they look. And because of that, um, you know, back to this white privilege bullshit, right? Like. They can, they can walk into a bank without being questioned about shit, right? And they can probably get access to a credit line without being honest, you know, and use that for their marijuana situation. Or, or they could find the five to $10,000 from their family uh, and walk into this, you know, because there is a, there's a threshold requirement to enter the industry and it's money. It costs a yeah. lot of capital into this. I was you know? just about to get you know, hit on that point, because if, if Rashid and I wanted to start up a cannabis company, we walked into Make of America saying, give us a hundred million dollar credit facility and they'll tell us <laughs> fuck out of it. But I we're mean, seeing- you can say a hundred thousand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, I was going to say, That's like a hundred thousand, yeah. No, 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 it's very true and it's so fucked up because, you know, I, I keep tabs on the industry every day and I'm all, you're saying, all these different companies oh they have this 50 million dollar credit facility or this 20 million dollar credit facility and i'm like when you look at the teams you never see a black person shit i don't even know if you see a hispanic person 
it, you know, I, I've been looking up and down the state of California, and it, it's like it's pretty clear who's well capitalized and who isn't. And those that are at the well capitalized situation, yeah, same demographic yeah. white, middle aged, you know, team of white people, yeah, right, former finance guys. I'm yeah. seeing a lot of those like forming Goldman Sachs guy who, oh, yeah, I just reached into my savings account, pulled out 10 million. And yeah, I, and I got- because the bar is raised, right? And it's really. It's really predatory what we're watching as well. I mean, there's people that have access to cash and they're subsidizing their operations by preying upon, almost like an employee, right? But it's the same thing, like, it's the same thing, right? You have people that will buy property, like out in Adelanto, where Adelanto, California, it's out a desert town, but it's become very cannabis friendly because the taxes there have saved the town, they've saved the city. Um, but it's a desert town, so they drop ship all these huge portables or build out these huge facilities that are like indoor greenhouses. And like the people that have access to cash can do all that, right? And then they invite others, like, hey, come be a come be a brand with us, guys. You know, you come here, you bring your right. you, know, you bring, you bring your, your IP, your effort, right? And you know, you get thirty percent. It's great, it's a great deal. They do all the work, you do all the work, you get thirty percent. Um, and they're subsidizing the hardware they bought, the property they're on, all that stuff. And the people that are working for them are none the wiser. Um, and this is like the story of, of every predatory enterprise. You know, it's about the margin. It's not, it's not about the enterprises. The, the best defense against competition is regulation. <laughs> that's a fact. No, no, that's, that's no, the competitive moat right there. That is the competitive moat. Um, if so. Do you believe we'll see legalization with a Democratic president? I mean, I don't because Joe Biden has said forever that he is for decriminalization, not legalization. But some people are saying, well, Kamala's going to, you know, bring him over to the other side. I don't know what the fuck they're talking about, because up until this year, Kamala looked down on anybody, you know, that was smoking cannabis. For sure. So, and I, I remember uh, seeing some of the shit that went down out here being pissed. Like, why? Why is that happening? That's some bullshit. Why is that happening? You know? Like, we're supposed to be fucking California. Why is this shit happening? So, yeah, I remember seeing that. You know, I remember there was a company, and this is how I kind of got, I have a genetic disorder, right? So I have a lot of pain across my joints, and I've been smoking weed as opposed to taking some painkillers since like 2000, whatever, right? And so- What was the first strain you ever smoked? Oh, I don't remember, but I remember the first thing I loved was blueberry. It was my favorite. (laughs) As I would, right? Blue boy, I mean, blueberry all day. Um, and in fact, I was going to say, one of my favorites was this blue cheese from Northstone Organics, which was up in NorCal. And they would deliver it, and they would deliver at a good price, and it was really convenient. And uh, yeah, Cali being what it was supposed to be, of course, you know, feds showed up with, uh, you know, the guns and everything, pulled all his plants. And anyway, you know, it's been a long time coming for the state of California, um, and I'm 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 really frustrated that it hasn't done more. Right? I mean, it should have done more. Where 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 are we at? We're supposed to be leading all of this, and we were not first. But Colorado, Washington, Oregon, else you know, it just there's something going there's something wrong. I think with the way the administration and to the extent like how ca- cannabis as an issue has been dealt with here. Um, so it's very frustrating. So yeah, I think to your point, I don't have high expectations when we look at a democratic-led environment. And I think a lot of that has to do back to the 
you know, the interests at play that are outside of politics, I think there's a very significant corporate interest to mitigate against that. And, you know, there's also just this cultural thing, man, like coming out of traditional banking, you can imagine how you know, people might shun a cannabis person. You know, I have trouble having people like LinkedIn posts in some places, right? Yeah. Like they feel like they're, I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's compliance software, but come on, the marijuana part, drop that out the name. Well, right. exactly, right? So, <laughs> like, what are you thinking, Scott? I've got a yeah. you know, traditional Catholic in my network, and if I say this, what will they think of me? You know? Who? I just thought about this because I, I think even if you try to take a different approach of entering the industry through, you know, a non-plant touching business, right? And nothing against Catholics. I should just add that point. Uh, I was yeah. brought up Catholic and like, absolutely. Like, I didn't mean it like that. It was an example joke. So God, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. On that shit. yeah. Yeah. Um, Jesus. When, um, what is what on funding? in this space like how do you gain exposure i mean because my way of getting exposure is through the public markets right um at this point as as a black man in america the the licenses cost so much (laughs) so how does one get exposure to the industry if they can't go the traditional route of either being plant touching or non-plant touching but even as a non-plant touching business it seems like there's a lot of venture capital firms that are not even still don't want to touch the space, even if you're not touching the plant. What the fuck do you well, find capital? So, I mean, the reason why venture firms can't do that is the way their agreements are written. Are written. You know, limited partnership uh, agreements, the LPA will state often um, no vice related whatever activities, investments, something or other. You know, I don't know the language, but basically it says vice, you can't do it. You can't do it. So, you know, these these people at uh, VC with that are just like out, that's a, they can't do anything about it. So often what that means, maybe an individual at a firm might do it. And frankly, like there's lots of risk for them in their mind, right? Their their perspective is, is if my LP, like Prudential, my executive sees me doing this investment, they're gonna wonder why, he, you know, there's risk for them. Like, why didn't I get the investment opportunity and or like you can't be doing that because that's a vice related thing and I don't want that to be like, touching our image, right? If you have a very traditional branded bank offering and a large con, you know, contingent of your clientele has a very strict anti-marijuana policy, whether it's police force or, you know, an employee that, you know, from an industry perspective, right? Uh, being high at work has long been associated with probably, you know, a pretty significant number of injuries. So from a conservative risk mitigation perspective, right, these folks are going to be thinking that way. So. A Prudential or a Walmart or somebody that has a national agenda, has national footprint, just is also prohibitively to be involved. So funding is really hard. I remember I, uh, I invested in Navis, who's a company, um, you know, of course, after uh, investing in you and your team, um, we, we saw a lot of like challenges that came across um, yeah. even publicity, right? right. And like having a name included in a headline for one of the investors was not okay. So there were, there was, there's a lot of, I think, varying perspectives on the, I guess, collateral damage or the collateral risk of being involved. Um, so back to where do you get funding? I mean, funding comes from a select few, there's folks that are certainly cannabis specific, right? Um, right. There's a few VCs that do that, DCM, 
um, Big Rock, uh, Casa Verde, folks like that. Yeah, but, but you can't even get a lot of credit right now, I think, because since it's still deemed federally illegal. 100%. There's banks, no credit. Yeah. So there's no credit anyway. Really it's a rich man's game. You know, as of right now, cannabis is a rich man's game, right? You have to have some type of backing or a nice little nest egg to enter in the industry, which is unfortunate, but, you know. Uh, but you know, that sounds familiar, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like crypto. Well, not even like just money service provider or banking or whatever, right? Well, well yeah, yeah. Sure, crypto with New York, but it's like right. you need a million dollar bond. You want to play this game? Sure, cough up a million, you know. Um, and like, so there's this like patently obvious way to discriminate against people without like being that obvious. And what it is is just you raise the bar of the dollars they have access to to just even play. So yeah. And that's really what it is. Yeah, that's true. Um, wrapping up here, what's what's on your, you know, do you have any companies on your watch list right now that you're looking at um, in the public markets, whether it's cannabis or any token you're excited about? I think Shopify is a really exciting company to be watching right now. It's been very quietly launching financial solutions to its SMBs and a lot of its retailers and resellers. Yeah. And um, to the extent that they, you know, from a big picture, everyone's going after the idea of the transaction information. So you think about Apple Pay, Google Pay, uh, mm-hmm. any of these other apps. Um, for the first time, and, and I think for a lot of people, they're building a way to really drill down to what the transaction is. And so um, Shopify, on the other side of that, um, kind of matches what, what I think. You know, is the innards and a lot of the challenges folks face at an enterprise level or a small business level, just administering the business, tracking your inventory, dealing with the accounting, making payments to vendors. These kinds of things are difficult to deal with. And when you get into the insides of that um, and you can handle it contextually and then build financial services around it, um, mm-hmm. you're very specific. And that's something that I think a lot of banks can't really and, and won't really be able to do in the same way. They're just not built that way. So it's an interesting opportunity to watch. So I would say Shopify is something to definitely be paying attention to from a banking and financial services perspective. Hmm. Uh, she, anything on your watch list um, for the remainder of the year? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I've covered TrustSwap before on here, but you know, we're back down below a twenty-five million dollar market cap at this point. So I'm just loading, loading up. That's one of the deep altcoin sort of projects that I really, really believe in. Um, so, yeah. Oh, there's, uh, yeah, I had a, a project come up just right quick. Um, the, the Phantom, F-A-N-T-O-M, that came on my radar. I don't know much about it. Um, have you guys heard of it? Phantom? No. I've heard of it briefly. I haven't done too much work on it, though. The colleague of mine's working for them. So, full disclaimer, I haven't purchased anything or done anything. I'm just... Right. Yeah, that was one I was looking at. I can't say I'm sentiment wise one way or the other, um, but it just popped up on the radar. Is this the one that uh, Andre Kranye is also? This is his second project. <sighs> Let me make sure I know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah. No, I, I looked at it and I had it on my note sheet. But as you know, with crypto, there's a million things a week, so exactly I haven't gotten to it yet. There's something about their their 
um, proof of stake, like proxying that would that seemed a little bit unique to me. So it was a little bit interesting to watch that. Um, yeah, everybody has stake now. It was so interesting. It's like the new. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I hope I didn't make an ass of myself. And no, no. Thank, thank you for coming on. I think uh, just really quick on my watch list, two companies that. Uh, I've started to look at uh, is our cure leaf given that we have upcoming uh, votes in New Jersey and Arizona uh, one month from today uh, it is on their ballot for full rec- you know adult recreational use legalization and cure leaf, cure leaf has uh, exposure in those states so I'm looking out for them and then Prologis with the rapid acceleration of e-commerce and more and more companies needing warehousing space Prologis is well positioned for that so those are the two companies that are on my watch list uh, feel free to check them out obviously do your own due diligence uh, but yeah Scott thanks for coming by man we appreciate thank it thank you guys have you come back in a year from now and just you know explain all the great success with sellout uh, <laughs> fingers crossed and, nothing's, nothing's taken for granted we're working every day here though uh, <laughs> no, that, no, it's good. no uh, but congratulations on that um, yeah I think that's it so you know to our listeners out there remember investments and securities can involve great risk uh, this podcast is only for informational purposes um, free game and conversation and we should not be relied upon for financial advice Please consult with a licensed financial advisor before you purchase or sell any security or crypto. Um, Scott, if, if someone wants to get in contact with you, uh, touch base with you to learn more about the cannabis industry, uh, do you have an email? Uh, yeah. Scott, go sell out. Or- That's it. S-C-O-T-T at go sellout.com. And yeah, right. for any, any, any cultivator farmer that's legal in California and save them hundreds of hours in their compliance data entry if they're using webmetric or thousands of dollars if they're using somebody else are you going to move into the uh east coast market absolutely we will we will be we will be growing um we wanted to be very focused and effective uh one step at a time gotcha all right well thanks man appreciate it um and with that trading places we're out we'll be back next week regular schedule catch us Um, Peace and love to everybody out there. Stay safe. Rich nigga shit I do a lot of. Nigga we be sipping out the bottle. I be fresh as hell rocking powder. Hopping out the PJ with a motto. Swimming in a baddie trying to drown.